The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. U.S. indices close at new record highs with the S&P 500 now up 100% from its pandemic bottom, marking the fastest bull market rally since the Second World War. Boston Fed Chair Eric Rosengren doubles down on calls for an end to the Fed's asset purchase program, telling CNBC that he believes it's no longer required. If we get another strong labor market report, I think that I would be supportive of announcing in September that we are ready to uh, start uh, the, the taper program. President Biden defends his decision to pull out of Afghanistan, despite chaotic scenes at Kabul airport as Afghans try to flee the Taliban, with the U.S. sending troops to secure the runway. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. And China issues new rules to tackle unfair competition online, strengthening its ability to regulate the behavior of internet giants like Tencent. Maybe a summer lull, but uh, certainly fresh records are worth noting. And uh, we inked up uh, some more on both the Dow and the S&P 500 yesterday. When it comes to uh, the likes of the Dow, fifth positive session in a row as we again got to this fresh record close. The 35th record uh, level we've seen for this year. Uh, big movers to the upside, uh, United Health, as we gained another third of a percent for the S&P 500. A similar range, as you can see, about a quarter of one percent. Apple, the big moving stock to the upside there. And this is the 49th record close for this year for the S&P. Now, when it comes to this index, it's also doubled since the pandemic lows that we witnessed 23rd uh, last year, uh, 23rd of March last year. And the pace that we've now witnessed to the upside, this is the fastest doubling of a bull market since the Second World War. An incredible pace, as you can see, as we've recovered that lost territory and then gained even more on the back of this recovery phase. A quick look at uh, Treasury markets. Investors closely eyeing what's been taking place here. We've had that uh, very weak reading from the University of Michigan on consumer behaviours and sentiment. And what we've had here, the yield uh, still falling 1.25%. Also in contrast to some bullish comments we've heard from the Fed around a taper. Rosengren, one that was on our channel yesterday, talking about the potential for a taper within sight next month. So that yield's still fairly stubbornly low, 1.25%. The energy market, here is where we continue to see some weakness around the Delta variant as concerns circle about the depressing impact that coronavirus is still having on the recovery phase with plans to bring back workers to the office delayed by some companies and very cautious behaviour also displayed by consumers out on the high street with some reverting to a real pandemic trend staying at home. And that is impacting what we're seeing. Emerging markets, of course, the other big theme for markets, as you consider that uh, many of these uh, nations in the end basket are still back coronavirus and it is a very tame picture on the Brent and WCI price this morning. Gold also not straying too far. 1786 at this stage, just slightly off uh, the higher range.
Let's get into the latest on the Fed as Boston Fed Chair Eric Rosengren has doubled down on his call for the FOMC to announce the winding down of its asset purchase program. He told CNBC that market dynamics are nearing the point that justify a tapering announcement. We've just come off a very strong labor market report. Uh, we've had two months in a row where we've created more than 900,000 jobs and the unemployment rate dropped by half a percent to 5.4 percent. If we get another strong labor market report, I think that I would be supportive of announcing in September that we are ready to uh, start uh, the, the taper program. Rosengren also argued for a swift end to asset purchases. In terms of when the taper program would end, uh, my own personal preference would be that we do equal amounts of reduction of both the mortgage-backed securities and treasury securities and that we finish off the program mid-year next year. Uh, that just reflects the fact that if it's not being particularly effective, uh, there's no reason to drag it out as long as the economy continues to progress as we expect. Hedge fund manager David Tepper has placed a fresh bet on ride-hailing giant Uber, according to the latest 13F filings. The Appaloosa management chief has also taken a position in Peloton competitor Beachbody, which went public virus back in June. Daniel Loeb's third point was boosted by a string of successful IPO bets over the second quarter, having taken stakes in Upstart Holdings and Centennial One. Loeb also ramped up his position in Intel, now holding 14,000 shares in the chipmaker. And Stanley Druckenmiller jumped back into Netflix over the last three months with a position worth around $91 million. Regulatory filings show the CEO of uh, the family office also took new stakes in COVID-fighting stocks. Meanwhile, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has upped its stakes in the retailer Kroger and insurance giant Aon. Leslie Picker has more. Warren Buffett's firm pairing back significant exposure to the healthcare industry during the second quarter. This according to the firm's so-called 13F filings, which showcase a fund manager's long equity positions for the quarter ending June 30th. In that quarter, Berkshire Hathaway selling about half of its stake in Merck, nearly 9 million shares, making the position worth about $700 million as of quarter end. The firm also shrunk its AbbVie and Bristol-Myers Squibb holdings, but they were still worth about $2.3 billion and $1.8 billion, respectively, a quarter end. Berkshire closed a position in Biogen as well. The firm did maintain its holdings in Johnson & Johnson and Teva, although those were relatively small positions, at least as far as Berkshire standards go. Berkshire revealed earlier this month that it had been net sellers of about $1 billion in equities during the quarter after unloading nearly $4 billion in Q1. In that vein, Berkshire also sold 20% of its stake in Marsh & McLennan, which had been a new stake just last quarter, and the firm sold about 10% of GM as well. To be sure, there were a few additions during the quarter. The firm boosted its stake in Kroger by 21% to hold more than $2 billion worth at quarter end, and it added a bit more to Aon and RH. Note, these positions are all as of June 30th. They may have changed in the six weeks since then. For CNBC Business News, I'm Leslie Picker. 
Let's take a quick look at the day ahead on Wall Street. Uh, early futures indicating a little bit of red ink on the boards. A triple-digit downbeat day on the Dow so far on the back of these fresh records and for the S&P along with the Nasdaq. Let's get some thoughts on this market. Michael Yoshikami joins us, founder and CEO of Destination Wealth Management. Michael, always great to see you. We've got this market that is battling some of the seasonality around August, yet still eking out fresh records. It's a narrow range of stocks, though, that continue to pro- propel the market forward. So what do you make of this fresh record territory and what does it signal to investors? Well, I I think it is fairly narrow, as you mentioned, Karen, and I think that uh, investors need to get not too enthusiastic here. Uh, You're going to hear perhaps more talk about tapering, as was indicated in the previous report from one of the Fed governors. And I think you're going to see the infrastructure bill likely pass, as well as some other tax tax increases that will actually filter through the economy, not just for individuals, but potentially for companies. So uh, with Delta raising its head, I would not get too excited about these all-time highs. I don't think it really is an all-clear signal. Michael, typically the market is forward-looking, but it feels like it's almost a backward-looking reaction now. Uh, Many taken by surprise at just how strong the revenue and earnings were this season and getting back into stocks. Is it dangerous then? Uh, Investors sort of underweighting the potential for that taper, but also for earnings revision as we go back to some different trends away from these uh, pandemic-fueled revenue numbers we've been witnessing. You you know, that's a great point. Um, When people talk about how uh, numbers are are at high levels, maybe it's year over year. Well, year over year, last year, what did that look like, right, in terms of uh, what the comparisons uh, really are really low comparison numbers for this year to make it look like it's really, really positive numbers. So I think investors are really overstating that things are going to stabilize. Delta is going to impact the economy uh, and you're going to have more difficult comparisons as we go along. And so I think investors are a bit too frothy right now. I'd be taking some profit in names that have rallied uh, and I certainly would be uh, careful about putting new money in the market. I do it gradually and not be too uh, energetic and dumping money into a market that is being fueled by a lot of optimism right now. Michael, it's a great point, isn't it? It's a difficult market now. Those who are watching go up, think, well, I missed out. How do I get in? Others who are holding on think, oh, perhaps I should make uh, some of this into real profit instead of just paper yeah, profits exactly. at this point. But if you consider what lies ahead, yes. you've got some sort of juicy news here. You think there's a 10% correction occurring later this year. How do investors anticipate when that pullback may happen and when to get into this market? Well, um, uh, it's virtually impossible to anticipate it. What you want to do, though, is expect that it will occur and have a laundry list of sectors, areas you want to get into the market when the downturn occurs. Typically, what happens, Karen, is when the market pulls back, let's say 7%, 8%, 10%, it's pretty indiscriminate. And sometimes some very, very good names get crushed. And so investors want to look at their portfolio ask themselves, what don't they own that they want to own? What sectors do they want to be invested in when that correction happens? Then act. What you don't want to do is wait for the market to go down and then say, oh, maybe I should think about um, doing some research here. That research needs to be done already when these opportunities arise.
should have, would have, could have type of mentality, Michael. I want to ask you about the Fed too. We had some very strong messaging from Eric Rosengren yesterday that he's ready for a, a taper or if we've got another strong jobs report. But we are getting some very mixed messages on the economy, particularly with the consumer sentiment recently, just showing that people are becoming more cautious around the Delta variant. They're altering their behaviours, which, as we know, could have an impact on the economy. Do you think the Fed is going to be able to pull the wraps off a taper announcement next month? Uh, I'd be very surprised if they pulled off the taper, given what's happening with Delta right now. Um, here in California, um, it, it's becoming a major issue. And that's a, a state that has lots of vaccinations under its belt. Imagine what's happening in Texas, Texas and Florida right now. So I think when you're in the midst of really essentially a major health crisis, uh, which is really happening all around the world, but it's certainly still happening in the United States, I just don't think the Fed is going to be able to take off taper. I don't think that's some news they want to send to the market. Maybe wait until Delta peaks, whenever that might be, God willing, uh, and then maybe start the taper. But I'd be really surprised if they were really aggressive in their movements in the next two to three months, Karen. Michael, there's also some international strains too. We've seen events unfolding in Afghanistan. We've got uh, issues when it comes to the mainland market as we look at a slowdown taking place there, along with technology regulation. How is this all impacting the psychology of the U.S. investor? Well, U.S. investors are right now petrified of investing in China because of what's been happening with uh, companies like Tencent and Didi. Uh, So you actually are starting to see tremendous hesitance in terms of putting new money at work in so-called emerging markets. Um, Europe is a bit more uh, comfortable for United States investors, but Afghanistan, what's happening with the price of oil, the uncertainty in China, there's just lots of global uncertainty right now. And I think for most US US investors, what's happened, I think, Karen, is they've really settled back towards the United States. And I think that's part of what's driving the markets up in the United States is investors are frightened to move outside of the border of the United States. So where do they invest? In the United States and multinational corporations that maybe have international exposure, but are names they recognize and are more comfortable with. Yeah, an element of a flight to safety there in a way, isn't it? I want to talk about your allocation idea. This large cap should be a primary equity focus. Where does technology fit into that mix? Because we're just talking a little bit about uh, the tech regulation in China. We've seen more detail today. And to me, it did not seem completely different to some of the early legislation that's been spelt out in the United States, even if it doesn't have full support on both sides of the aisle at this stage. So how cautious are you around those big technology names as you talk about big cap stocks? Well, I think technology names, uh, b- the big cap technology names that everyone is familiar with, and the technology sector in the United States is actually quite healthy. I know there's some concern that there's going to be growing regulation to break up technology companies. There's nowhere near the activism that you're seeing in China, for example, where China is requiring companies that merged a year ago to unmerge, to div- divest themselves of what they think what regulators think are monopolistic businesses. So I think that um, the top sector holdings in our perspective should be technology, uh, certainly should be consumer defensive names uh, in case you have uh, some rides in the economy up and down. Um, Healthcare, I still think makes sense and financial services, which though interest rates are not going up or benefiting from at least a recovering economy. That's how I think you ought to be positioned right now and mostly large cap. I just think that's where the safety is. You get some dividends oftentimes, Uh, And I think right now in the world we live in, safety is not the worst thing in the world. Michael, uh, great conversation. Always nice to hear your voice and catch up with you. Michael Yoshikami with us, founder and CEO, Destination Wealth Management.
We've got some numbers crossing from JustEatTakeaway.com. Uh, this is the big food delivery platform. It uh, did recently update uh, on numbers ahead of the Q2 result, but uh, we have the full numbers crossing this morning. It says revenue on the combined basis grew by 52% to $2.6 billion in the first half compared to $1.8 billion in the first half of last year, uh, which tells you about the progression and just how high the customer numbers are in some of these platforms uh, that have been built out over the past uh, couple of years, but certainly been accelerated over the last year. In the first half of 2021, COVID-19 related commission fee caps and restaurant support initiatives amounted to 142 million on an adjusted EBITDA uh, basis that is uh, for JustEatTakeaway.com. That is a minus uh, 190 million in the first six months of 2021. That is the adjusted EBITDA line. The company's cash position has amounted to 1.52 billion as at the 30th of June, and the company will be hosting a capital markets day on the 21st of October. So, putting that in the diary for investors. Also, uh, reiterated its intention to monetize its 33% stake in iFood. The highest bid to date has amounted to 2.3 billion. Talking about consolidation in the sector. Uh, they've also gone on to say in the second half of this year, they will continue to invest in growth and prioritize online share over adjusted EBITDA. So still going for market share here seems to be uh, one of the takeaway messages. But uh, we will continue to, to wade through some of this detail over the course of the morning. We are going to squeeze in a quick break. Coming up on the show, President Biden stands by his decision to withdraw from Afghanistan amid chaotic scenes of people trying to flee the Taliban's advance. We'll have the latest right after the break. And for more on our first on CNBC interview with Fed Hawk, Eric Rosengren, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. I'm deeply saddened by the facts we now face. But I do not regret my decision to end America's war fighting in Afghanistan. I know my decision will be criticized, but I would rather take all that criticism than pass this decision on to another president of the United States, yet another one, a fifth one. Well, that, of course, was the U.S. President Joe Biden defending his decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan despite the domestic chaos and criticism that has followed in that country. Biden blamed the Taliban's swift takeover of the country uh, on Afghan political leaders uh, who fled the country and local military forces, the president said, were unwilling to 
fight. Now, the president also acknowledged that the Taliban's victory had come much faster than expected. Many Afghans tried to flee their advance with chaotic scenes at Kabul airport, devastating scenes as some clung to departing planes. The UN Secretary of Security Council has called for talks to create a new government in Afghanistan as the Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns of, quote, chilling curbs on human rights, especially for women and girls. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel argued allied forces in Afghanistan had to be realistic about the outcome of their 20-year war. This is a realization that it is better, better for the many Afghans that were very active along the way, but our efforts were obviously not strong enough. It takes a lot more time than we thought. We were in Afghanistan for 20 years, and in this time it did not work. So we have to say that our efforts were not successful, and we have to learn our lessons and set ourselves smaller goals on those missions. And the French president, Monsieur Macron, insisted allies must continue to cooperate to extend the progress they have made. Terrorist groups are present in Afghanistan and they will try to gain advantage from the destabilization. The UN Security Council will have to give a responsible and united answer. Afghanistan cannot become again the sanctuary for terrorism that it once was. With regard to this, we will do everything so that Russia, the US and Europe can cooperate efficiently because all of our interests are the same. Right, well, Dan joins us now live from Abu Dhabi. And Dan, there are two things going on here. One is the medium to longer term ramifications of what happens and what that means geopolitically. But of course, already, as we all saw yesterday, unbearable scenes uh, on the tarmac at Kabul airport as well. The chaos reigns uh, and a safe extraction of all those who want to leave Afghanistan. Well, that still remains a very big question in the short term. That's exactly right, Steve. And as you addressed, President Biden suggested that the collapse of Afghanistan came much faster than U.S. officials had anticipated. But he also pointed a finger of blame towards the Afghan National Army for failing to defend civilians despite 20 years of American investment, Afghan leaders for fleeing the country and the former Trump administration for inheriting what he described as a bad deal with a bad timeline. All the while, President Biden has also vowed to defend the American presence on the ground, saying any retaliation against the current and ongoing American evacuation will be met with harsh retaliation pushback. Listen. As we carry out this departure, we have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the U.S. presence will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. We will defend our people with devastating force if necessary. Our current military mission will be short in time, limited in scope, and focused in its objectives. Get our people and our allies as safely as quickly as possible. Shortly before the president's address last night, we also heard from the UN Secretary General on an emergency session of the UN Security Council, which called on the international community to now provide a coordinated response and humanitarian assistance here. Of course, we also see Afghanistan facing a worsening humanitarian crisis now in the absence of effective leadership. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, also saying that he held separate discussions with his counterparts in Britain, the EU, 
Turkey and NATO on the situation there. And we've also seen reports and commentary from leaders that some countries across Europe are now bracing for an influx of refugees. Uh, Interesting to also give you a take on what's happening on the ground in Kabul as well, because the report suggests that the Taliban presence has been quite strong. Fighters, we understand, have been uh, collecting the personal weapons of basically anyone wearing a uniform on the ground, as well as weapons from civilians. But what's interesting here is that fighters are apparently under orders not to harm anyone, Stephen, to respect personal property. So perhaps what we see playing out here is the Taliban working to prove that it has changed since the days of 9-11, perhaps looking to show potential backers like China and Russia that it can be an effective governing regime. Back to you. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point to leave it down, actually, because I was going to raise a similar point, actually, about who is going to have geopolitical influence in Afghanistan going forward. And you talked about the EU, uh, the US, NATO looking at collective uh, reaction and and collective response to the events on the ground. But are those players actually uh, going to have any influence on Afghanistan going forward? And you alluded to the fact that the likes of the Chinese, uh, the Pakistanis, of course, uh, um, the Russians uh, and certain Middle Eastern players uh, will be the influence players going forward. So is this a geopolitical shift in influence away from those former parties you mentioned who are trying to work on their reaction actually to that latter grouping? I would agree with that. I think this is an absolute political power vacuum in the absence of an American presence on the ground there. And that means there is opportunity for foreign actors to have a wider role and a larger influence over the future of Afghanistan. What's going to be interesting is who is going to take the lead role when it comes to influencing Afghanistan's political future. And we've already seen reports coming out of Doha, CNBC speaking to sources on the ground this morning seeking more information about meetings that are taking place between two former Afghan leaders and members of the Taliban. Of course, we know Qatar has offered to uh, broker some kind of peace agreement. Those conversations are ongoing. We're going to bring you more information as it comes to hand. But there is a political power vacuum indeed in Afghanistan, Steve, and who is going to take the helm remains to be seen. No doubt the Taliban will have an outsized presence and will likely have a shaping role in what the future political leadership of Afghanistan looks like. But the foreign actors that are going to be also having an influence on the ground there, like Pakistan, like China, uh, like Russia, as you suggest, uh, will be very interesting to watch as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.